Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Now, if you look at your, uh, your handy-dandy little flyer here, uh, you'll notice it says that we're going to study chapter 27, 45 to 28, 20, and we're going to look at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, actually, in preparation for the baby coming, Will's baby coming, these were produced a little bit earlier than that, so we're not going to make it that far. We're not going to actually even make it into chapter 28, which speaks of the resurrection of Christ. So though today's sermon is entitled The Resurrection of Christ, we're not going to look at the resurrection of Christ, um, just to keep you on your toes. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, that's where we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 27. Someday when we get a building, I'm going to have an air conditioning vent right over this. Uh, I don't know what's going on, but if you guys get cold, there's plenty of seats over there. All right, so as we are in Matthew 27, we are in the final days of Jesus' life. It started in Matthew 19, where Jesus made his way from the Galilee region down to or up to Jerusalem, they usually say because it's elevated, but it's, they, they went south, so they went down to Jerusalem. We see in Matthew 19.1 these words, it said, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That means that Jesus was leaving the Galilee region and heading down to the area of Jerusalem. That was about a month earlier from the events we've really been concentrating on the last few days. That trip took about three weeks to do that or so. And it culminated, if you will, in the event in Matthew chapter 21 that we call Jesus' triumphal entry. And so you may recall in chapter 21, verse 10, it said, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. This is Palm Sunday. This is where they laid out the red carpet. They put the palms on the ground. They laid their coats on the ground, not their hand palms, the palm branches of the trees. They put those on the ground, laid out their coats, and Jesus came in sort of uh, in this hero's parade. And people are like, well, who's this guy? And as you see there in verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so chapter 19, chapter 21, here we are now in chapter 27. Matthew spends 10 chapters on the final month of Jesus' life, and he spends eight chapters on the final week of Jesus' life. I find that significant. The Gospel of John spends over half of his book on the final week of Jesus' life. This is what we've been coming to. It all comes to this point where Jesus would go to the cross, and we spent some time looking at chapter 27, which is really the last day of Jesus' life. We saw Judas' regret in the first few verses of the chapter, where he tried to kind of go back and do everything over, and he couldn't, and he eventually went and committed suicide. We've already been noticing that there have been a series of trials, religious trials that Jesus has gone through, and so they began in chapter 26, and there were three of them, and they finally came to this decision where Jesus was guilty, and so they delivered Jesus over to the political authorities to handle him, to take care of him. That was sort of the end of chapter 26 and into 27. Notice verse 1 of 27. It says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they took counsel uh, against Jesus to put him to death. They pronounced this verdict here against Jesus that he was guilty. 
guilty of blasphemy, and the penalty should be death. Now again, because the children of Israel, the Jewish people, were not able to put people to death, they had lost that privilege, lost that right, they have to bring it to the political authority who happened to be a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. And we were introduced to him a little bit last week, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Jerusalem. And it was Pontius Pilate who would make this ultimate decision, yes, that Jesus must be crucified. And we read in verse 26 of the chapter, then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Now that brings us to where we left off. So we pick up in verse 45 of chapter 27. I'll read a few verses. You can follow along. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and he took a sponge and he filled it with sour wine and put it, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The other said, no, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, now behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion who saw excuse me, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe, and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, there were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So Matthew begins in in verse 45. Notice Matthew points out that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now, we don't normally refer to hours by the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the twelfth hour, but their day would have begun around 6 a.m. That would have been the first hour of their day. So the sixth hour then moves us to about noon. So from noon until 3 p.m., a darkness had come over the land. Now, noon to 3 p.m. is typically when the sun is going to be at its brightest, And yet for those three hours on this particular day, there was a darkness that came over all of the land. Now there is some discussion. Was this some sort of solar eclipse? If it was a solar eclipse, was it localized to Jerusalem and perhaps the immediate surrounding area or did it sort of spread out over all the earth or something like that? So let's take a couple of thoughts. Let's look at that with a couple of thoughts. First off, the Greek word that is translated land here in verse 45 is almost always, not always, but almost always, translated earth throughout the New Testament. And by that, it typically means the entire earth, not just a localized area of land. And so it's possible, or maybe even probable, that this darkness that is being spoken of here was not localized just to the area of Jerusalem, but that it spread out over the entire planet. It is interesting to note that many cultures make reference to a darkness which came over the land, whether that be in their literature or in their mythology or whatever it may be, around this time period, as if there was a reference point for them to draw on in their particular writings. We don't know for certain, but a darkness certainly came over Jerusalem, if not 
the entire world. Now, was this a solar eclipse that brought about the darkness? Now we're getting into science. I'm not a big fan of science. I tried to get out of science class in college by taking political science, and they said that wasn't allowed, um, but I tried twice. Uh, and they still said it wasn't allowed. Uh, so I did some reading on solar eclipses. My mind sort of just went blank because I have no idea what I'm reading, all these terms or whatever. But I'm going to just share a few things with you. Um, first off, it just so happened that there was a solar eclipse at the moment that God's Messiah was being crucified. Wow, that's quite a coincidence. So even if that was the means by which God accomplished this darkness, it's quite a coincidence that it coincides with the crucifixion of his son. That's the first thing I would say to you. Secondly, solar eclipses, total solar eclipses, last anywhere from two minutes to seven minutes. Seven minutes max. This one lasted three hours. So that would certainly make it an unusual solar eclipse. Finally, solar eclipses, they only take place during the new moon phase of the moon. If you remember all those moon phases? I didn't. Uh, I know the full moon and I know the little fingernail moon. That's what I knew. All right, that was my extent of things. But apparently there's something called a new moon uh, phase, which is the start of the Jewish month. The Jewish month would, would begin with each new moon. Makes sense, right? You start the month with the new moon. And we know that Passover takes place two weeks into the particular month that it occurs in. And so this, the, the moon that would have t- taken place at this time would have been the Passover moon, which is not the new moon, it's the full moon. So you have a full moon taking place when Jesus is being crucified, and so this can't be a solar eclipse because it's, that takes place only during a new moon. So we're talking about a spiritual event that is occurring. There is a darkness that is coming over the land. As we've said before, when Jesus is on the cross, there is a spiritual transaction that is happening. As I've quoted a few times from 2 Corinthians, God is making him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There is a spiritual transaction that is taking place. And accompanying that, there is a darkness that is spreading all over the land. And in those hours of darkness, Jesus is paying the price, he's settling the debt, and he's finishing the work of redemption, all while he hangs upon the cross there. And so to accompany that, God sends a darkness over all of the land. Now verse 46, it says about the ninth hour, Jesus Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and you see the words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified, it started at the third hour. Mark 15 says it was the third hour when they crucified Jesus. So that would be 9 a.m. The darkness begins at noon, and it will last to three. And then six hours after, Jesus is put on the cross at three in the afternoon, he'll cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which may mean nothing to any of us, but Matthew is kind enough. He translates it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, as we read here in verse 47, people hearing Eli, Eli begin to conclude, maybe in a form of mockery, or maybe they sincerely conclude it. Well, Jesus must be calling Elijah. He's calling the prophet Elijah for help in the midst of this. Elijah, Elijah, help me, help me. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me is what he really said. But they hear Eli, Eli. They think he's calling out for Elijah. In actuality, Jesus is not calling for Elijah. What Jesus is doing is making reference to something I made reference to last week, Psalm chapter 22. And Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, it begins this way. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Word for word, Jesus is quoting Psalm chapter 22. Listen, if you haven't done so, you should go back and read Psalm 22. After church today, this afternoon, this evening, take some time and read Psalm 22 and in in your mind have the concept of what we've been looking at with the crucifixion. Because as you go through the chapter, what you see is, hey, that's when the guys were doing this. And that's when Jesus was saying that. And, that's, and you can just see the cross there in uh, Psalm chapter 22. It's, it's really as if David had a chair and he pulled it up 1,000 years later. Somehow he traveled through time and put his chair down at the, the foot of the cross or some little hill over there on the side. And he watched and he observed the events of the crucifixion. And then he wrote down about him. It really is remarkable. And so if you haven't read Psalm 22 in a while, I'd uh, encourage you to go back and do so. But notice, David draws attention, to, or Matthew draws attention to Jesus' cry where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David in that psalm will draw attention to the mockery and the scorn that Jesus would go through. Even drawing attention to the people that were at the foot of the cross, seemingly walking back and forth, wagging their heads, saying, he trusts in God, let God deliver him. Remember we looked at that? Well, we have, it's in a, one of the other Gospels. Psalm 22.8 says, he trusts in the Lord. Word for word. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David points out the precarious position a person that is being crucified is in. As their body is on the cross, the weight of their body is falling down. So all of their, sort of their joints are out of place. It says here in verse 14 of Psalm 22, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. He points out how a crucified man's bones would be out of joint, how their mouth would become dry. Jesus would say a little later, I thirst as he's about to say something to the crowd that is gathered there, he wasn't able really, it seems, to form the words because his mouth was so dry. So he just wanted a sip of something so that he could. David points that out a thousand years earlier. As I pointed out last week, David takes notice of the way that the soldiers there at the foot of the cross cruelly and heartlessly divide up Jesus' clothes and cast lots to decide who gets to keep what from the Lord. David saw that. He said, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, it's as if David was transported through time and had a front row seat to these occurrences. And so Jesus, by quoting verse 1 of Psalm 22, I would suggest to you what Jesus is doing is drawing our attention to the famed messianic psalm, Psalm 22. The Father is pouring out his wrath on sin which Jesus has become for us. The Father is pouring out his wrath on sin, and the sinless one for the first time ever, Jesus, for the first time ever is experiencing the separation that sin causes. Jesus is being forsaken so that all of us that would believe on him would not be forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, a spiritual transaction is taking place. Now, why draw attention to the psalm? Is Jesus simply trying to draw attention so we will marvel and say, wow, how neat, that's pretty cool. Wow, the Bible's something. Is that what Jesus is trying to do? I would suggest it goes a lot further. I would suggest by quoting verse 1 of Psalm 22, Jesus is informing those that are observing 
us included, that Psalm 22 is being fulfilled right in front of their eyes. That's especially significant because Psalm 22 ends in a very different place from where Psalm 22 begins. So again, Psalm 22, it begins with Jesus, or well, with David there writing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends in a very different place. Verse 21 of the chapter, it ends this way. Whoever it is that Matt, or David has in his picture, we know it's Jesus, him saying, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. Notice, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has not despised the affliction of the afflicted. You see, we're going in a completely different direction from where it starts and how it appears to start. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Verse 30, it says, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Notice those toward the end of that psalm, you have rescued me. You have not despised me. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people that are yet unborn. Jesus, in pointing to Psalm 22, I would suggest to you, this is what he's saying. Read the whole chapter. Don't just read the first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read the whole chapter. Because the whole chapter discloses to us that God's plan of salvation is being accomplished in this moment on the cross. And I don't want any of you below me to miss it, Jesus is saying. Read the whole chapter. As the prophet Isaiah said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is, God's Messiah. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Because again, to quote Isaiah, by the stripes of God's Messiah, we are healed. By the fact that he went to the cross, our sin can be forgiven. Though it may appear that the Father has abandoned His Son, read the whole story. Jesus is saying there from the cross. The plan of the Lord is being carried out. This plan that was from the beginning of time is being carried out in front of them. God is making Him who knew no sin to become sin so that those who would believe on Him might become the righteousness of God. Again, you are a sinner, I'm a sinner, we all know it. No one's debating that fact here in this room. But when each of us comes to the throne room of God on our last day, whatever that's going to look like and however that's going to be, He's going to look upon our lives, if we're believers, and not see all of our sin. But He's going to look upon us and see the righteousness of Christ. And that's because of this transaction that takes place here. And so since the plan has been fully carried out, notice what Jesus can do in verse 50. He can yield up His Spirit. Verse 50 says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and He yielded up His Spirit. None of these things were outside of the control of God, not even the death of the Son. It might just be semantics, but Jesus wasn't killed on the cross, but rather He yielded up His life on the cross. He yielded up His Spirit, as it says in verse 50. He accomplished the work that He had come to do, 
And so as John tells us, the Gospel of John tells us, there accompanying that yielding up of his spirit, he could say, it is finished. John wrote it this way. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. They put a, a sponge full of the wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he wet his whistle, if you want to think of it that way, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Now that phrase in English that, that we have, it is finished, it's actually just one word in the Greek language. It's a Greek word, tetelestai. It's a term that means to be paid in full. It was an economic term. If you've ever had a debt that you've been paying over a long period of time and you're making those installments, if you go to Financial Peace University, you're not going to have a debt. We just learned that very important lesson this last week. But perhaps before you went to the class, you had some debts and you were paying your installments over time for it. At the end, you finally make, you're not sure, did I make the last payment or not? Finally, you get something in the mail and you look at that paper and in big red letters stamped across it, it says, paid in full. And you rejoice in that fact. I no longer have to pay for my car or my house or my wife and I. We bought a bed one time for five years worth of payments or whatever it may be or whatever. Then you get that paper and it says paid in full. Well, in Greek, that would be the word tetelestai. It was an economic term. Jesus is saying the debt has been paid in full. Jesus is saying that which I have come to do, I have done. Jesus is saying it is finished. And with those words, our Lord yielded up his spirit. Now, while that's happening over here, just outside of Jerusalem, other things are taking place in Jerusalem and just around the area of Jerusalem. A whole, really, host of remarkable events. Look at verse 51. It says, Now behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, and they appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. So coinciding with Jesus yielding up his spirit, we learn that the curtain of the temple was torn in two, verse 51, the first part of that says it. Now, the, the curtain in the temple, the veil, some of your versions will say, in the temple, was that which separated. So remember, the temple building was essentially just a rectangle, and it had two rooms. There was one room which was called the holy place, and there was a second room that was called the most holy place, also sometimes called the holy of holies. And what separated those tombs, or those rooms, one from the other, was a curtain. The curtain would run up, uh, let's see, 60 feet high. It would go 30 feet wide. It's estimated. We don't have this in, Bible, in the Bible, but uh, historians and stuff uh, from that area, era estimate that it was 12 inches thick. 12 inches thick, that's a foot thick. That's pretty thick. So six, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, 12 inches thick here. And it separated the holy place from the most holy place. Only the priests were allowed to go into the holy place. And they could go in daily and do what they had to do in the holy place. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and he could only do that once a year, where he would go into the most holy place. The most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt, 
And as we know from the Scripture, God's Shekinah glory dwell in that room, in that most holy place. And so what the curtain represents to us, it, it speaks to the fact that access into the presence of God is blocked. Only one person can go in there one time a year. And if that guy's been playing around a little bit and has been serious in his faith, he would be struck down dead. They used to tie a rope around the foot of the high priest, and they would put a bell on his waist. And so every time the high priest is doing what he had to do, the bell would ring a little. And if that bell stopped, they'd wait a little. Maybe he's praying. Maybe he's standing still. Ten minutes goes by. Twenty minutes goes by. Something happened. They would take the rope, and they would drag the guy out of there. He was struck down dead. I'm not going in there to get him. I'll be struck down dead. And so the whole reason they put the rope on this particular, on the high priest. And so there was not access in there. But when Jesus dies on the cross, the scripture says here that that veil was torn. And it speaks to the fact that access into the presence of God is now available to all. That the veil was torn. Notice it says in verse 51 that it was torn from top to bottom. From top to bottom. Nobody set up a ladder. Nobody with their teeth got it started and they began to rip it from the bottom or whatever. It was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing this idea that it was God that granted access uh, to all. If I, if I can suggest, you already have homework. Psalm 22, may I suggest read uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is a wonderful book if uh, you're trying to get a, a sense of, okay, what, what does the Old Testament mean for the Christian faith? Read the book of Hebrews, because a lot of the things in the Old Testament and the symbolism of those things are explained in Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 10, the veil itself is explained. And it's a great chapter. I'd encourage you to go take a look at the chapter in light of what we're reading today. So you've got Psalm 22, you've got Hebrews 10. How many of you are planning on doing that? Thank you. Okay, now, okay, I'll do it. You know, yeah, for you. All right, fantastic. I took note of who raised their hand, and I will be checking. Anyhow. Verse 51, not only was the curtain torn, notice what uh, the second portion of the verse says, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Notice verse 52, even the tombs were opened. And then perhaps one of the most bizarre verses in our entire Bible, it says, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves, their tombs, they, after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. How about that? That's all Matthew tells us. Sort of a Walking Dead, you know, movie. We have all these like zombie movies nowadays or whatever. That's all he tells us is that there was an earthquake, the graves were opened, and then three days later after the resurrection, people came out of the graves, they went into the city, and they interacted with people. None of the other Gospels make mention of this particular event. And Matthew only just throw some quick thing out there without any explanation to it. The best that we can piece together is, now over there, their graves aren't typically in the ground. They're above the ground, and they're in sarcophaguses. You see that a lot in the south, sometimes uh, in our cemeteries or whatever. But they essentially have a rectangle block structure uh, that's above the ground. They put a nice big stone on top of it, and on the top of the stone where we would have a stone that stands upright, it would be laid down and it would say, you know, here lies Mrs. Jones or, or whomever. And so the best that we can piece together is that the earthquake dislodged some of the lids from these uh, sarcophaguses 
and you know, they fell off or whatever, and the body laid there. And then three days later, when Jesus came out of the grave, much like Lazarus was raised from the dead, these bodies were raised from the dead, these people were raised from the dead, and they got up and they went around Jerusalem and they lived for a year longer, five years longer, who knows how much longer they lived, and they interact with people and I guess told them what they experienced during the time that they had been in the grave. It's the best I got for you, friends. Uh, we don't know much more than that about that particular verse here. But you have the veil being torn. You have the earth shaking. It may or may not still be dark, or the darkness might be sort of uh, disappearing and the light is starting to come back on the earth. And all of that is enough to bring a hardened Roman soldier. It says there in verse 54, or maybe it's 53 or so, it says that the centurion comes to the faith. So again, there at the foot of the cross, having observed all that Jesus went through during probably the last day when Jesus was arrested in the garden, when he went through the various trials, when he was beaten and scourged uh, at the direction of Pilate, as he made his way to the cross, as he hung on the cross for six hours, they're observing all of that, combined with a darkness that comes over all of the land, combined with the fact that when he said, it is finished, and yielded up sort of that last big breath of his life, and he yielded up his spirit, then all of a sudden the whole world starts to shake. Rumors start coming in about the veil in the temple being torn, which was not very far away. People probably could have heard the screams of what occurred there. All of this is enough to convince this hardened soldier. Notice what it says in verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, truly this was the Son of God. Truly this was the Son of God. Pretty close. Truly this is the Son of God but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Truly, this was the Son of God. He thought that it was all over. Later on, no doubt he would go to understand that Jesus was still alive. Now, whether or not this is an actual confession of faith or it's an acknowledgement by this Roman man that this guy on the cross was far different from any other man that I've observed and watched over to be crucified, we, we don't necessarily know if it was an actual confession of faith or not. What we do know is that Jesus' death certainly made an impact on him. And as it says, not just him, the others that observed with him. It wouldn't surprise me if the guy got saved here and this is an actual confession because earlier you recall Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it seems as if the Lord is answering, the Father is answering that prayer. And one of Jesus' crucifiers, I'm not sure if that's the right term, but one of the men actually crucifying Jesus, they were mocking Jesus and all of that, perhaps actually is forgiven of his sins. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Now Matthew continues, verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, we've already taken notice of how Jesus' closest disciples, the, the apostles, how they abandoned Jesus in his time of suffering. Jesus predicted that that would be the case. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, uh, is the, the Old Testament prophecy. 
Here at the cross, all of the disciples, again, all of the apostles, they have left with the exception of John. We know that John was there at the, at the foot of the cross because Jesus speaks to John and asks John to take care of his mom after he is dead. But in addition to John, he's the only male disciple that is there. In addition to him, there are some other disciples, and they are a group of women, three of whom are mentioned here. Matthew lists them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, a lot of Marys in those days, as well as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, the mother's, mother of the sons of Zebedee are James and John. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. And so you have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mark tells us her name, by the way. It's Salome. So you got the two Marys and a Salome. We know Mary's mom, Mary, Jesus' mom, was also there. So now you have three Marys and a lady by the name of Salome uh, that are there. Mark will also tell us in chapter 15, Mark will say, when he was in Galilee, they followed him, ministered him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so it's not just the four women, three Marys and Salome, but many other women who came up with him from Jerusalem. So there's a group of women that are there at the foot of the cross. And their devotion to Christ, to Jesus, overrode any concern they may have had at being associated with Jesus. Now part of that may be because the soldiers aren't going to mess with them. It's a group of ladies. They're not a military threat. And the men were a little fearful that they were going to be arrested and crucified themselves. So perhaps something like that is working into the equation. But either way, whereas everybody else had fled, you have this group of women, four, five, six, eight women, number of women that are there. And they did what they could. And that was simply be with Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. That's all they could give him. And Jesus is pleased by that. And it's recorded in the scriptures. Verse 57, now when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea whose name was Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and he laid it on his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite of the tomb. Excuse me. So Matthew tells us it's evening. Evening would have began around 6 p.m. or so, so this is probably shortly thereafter. Matthew tells us that a rich man named Joseph from Arimathea, as you can see in the verse there, went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Now typically, a crucified man's body would have been left on the cross days after it had died. And it would have been left on the cross again to send a message to everyone passing by. Oh my goodness, it would be left on the cross to rot there in the hot desert sun. It would be left on the cross for the animals and the vultures to devour. Sometimes we have a picture of the cross as being, you know, 15 feet up in the air or something like that. There were different types of crosses. Some were very high up in the air. Others, others of them, the person's feet were no more than six or eight inches off of the ground. And so they're still up in the air, but it's not like they're 20 feet up in the air. Just a little bit up in the air and animals could go and they would to the bottom of the, the victim's feet and they would bite at it and eat at it. Uh, and so on. And so typically, a person that died on the cross, their body was left there. But as we, we see in the Gospels, because it was the Passover, the Jews didn't want such a gruesome display just outside of their temple. And so they went to Pilate and they requested of Pilate that the body of the three victims 
be removed. Now, I pointed out one of the last studies that a person didn't die instantaneously on a cross. Some people lived on a cross for days up there. And so Pilate's decision there was that they would break the legs of the victims. The, the victims would not be able uh, to take that deep breath any longer. Remember, I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, where their feet were nailed, there was a little board which they was also nailed to the cross and they could put their weight on that little board and lift themselves up a bit to take a deep breath because when you're on a cross, your body sort of hangs forward, your chest is down lower. And if you're ever trying to take a deep breath, you know... You kind of lift yourself up to take that deep breath. And so if their legs are broken, they're no longer able to push up and take that deep breath. And so then they'll die in two minutes, three minutes, however long it is, a person uh, can hold their breath. And so Pilate had ordered that their legs be broken, as it says in chapter 19, verse 31 of the book of John. Again, they came to Jesus and he was already dead. And so they didn't break Jesus's legs. They stabbed him. Uh, to make sure that he was dead, uh, and indeed he was. And so Jesus' legs in fulfillment of the scripture, no bone would be broken. No bone indeed uh, was broken. But with all three men dead, it says in John 19, I, I read that to you already, with all three men dead, all that remains to do is dispose of the bodies. And so they took the three men down, frankly. Uh, the two prisoners were likely just thrown uh, into um, a valley somewhere, and again, their bodies devoured. Um, but we know regarding Jesus, there were enough people that had enough de devotion toward Jesus that they felt that he should receive a proper burial, if not a temporary burial, a proper burial. And so again, we read that Joseph of Arimathea, he comes, he petitions Pilate that he might have Jesus' body. Now we learn some things about Joseph from Matthew and the other Gospels. First off, he's from Arimathea. Now, Arimathea was about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a rural area of the region of Judea, and that is where he's from. It just tells us he's from Arimathea. We see that he was a rich man. Matthew 27, 57 points out that he is a rich man. Also, even if it didn't say that he was a rich man, we would know that he was a rich man because it says there that he has his own new tomb that had been cut in the rock. So he had the extra money to prepare to have a burial ready for him in Jerusalem. Now, he's not from Jerusalem. He's from Arimathea. But he wants to be buried in Jerusalem, which is an indication to us that he's a transplant to the city. And anyone that is able to have a, a tomb for himself or for his family carved out of the rock, essentially creating a cave for themselves where they and their family members would be buried, this is a guy of some means. Matthew chapter 27 points out that he was a disciple of Jesus. But we learn in the Gospel of John that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. John says this, After these things, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, abandons all caution, goes and asks Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. Now we know, we've looked at it, the religious leaders have already made it clear that anyone that identifies with, names the name of Christ, says that they're a disciple of Christ, that they would be put out of the synagogue. So it was very clear that the religious leaders had made up their mind about Jesus and publicly associating yourself with him, uh, would, you'd be shunned essentially from the synagogue. And if you're familiar with the practice of shunning in some cultures uh, and so on, essentially 
they would be broken from society, family, finances, socially, all of those sorts of things. And so many, there were many people in society that were followers of Jesus, but secretly. Joseph was one of them. He was a secret follower of Christ. Now we learn one more fact about Joseph. This comes from the Gospel of Mark. And what we, we've learned from Matthew and John, we know his place of origin, we know his wealth, we know that he was a secret disciple. But Mark gives us, and Luke does as well, one more important fact that's not given in those other two Gospels. And that is that Joseph was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. He was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. It says this in Mark. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And so, despite being member, a member of the group that ultimately delivered Jesus over to be crucified, we, re- we, we come to discover he did not consent to the council's de- decision to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. Again, Luke 23 tells us that, who had not consented to their decision. So, if folks were reluctant to confess Christ out of fear of being put out of the synagogue, How about a guy that is sitting on the ruling body of the Jewish people? You think he's going to be a little reluctant to perhaps lose that place in society? Certainly so. But he is reluctant no longer, as we see. And so this respected member of the Sanhedrin, he throws caution to the wind. And as Mark describes it, he took courage and he went and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now this is a highly impractical thing to do. Jesus is dead. The dream is over. Why would you associate yourself now with this guy? And yet, that's exactly what he decides to do. He determines he can be quiet no longer. Let the consequences be what the consequences are going to be. He takes courage. John tells us that another fellow with him, a guy by the name of Nicodemus, together, they take the body of Jesus and they begin to prepare it for burial. I'll read the John passage. It says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, that's John chapter 3, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, and they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus, we know, was also a member of the Sanhedrin. And so you have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These two are secret disciples of Jesus. They are members of the ruling body of the society who is totally anti-Jesus. Jesus would refer to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel, emphasis on the word the, that he was kind of the guy in society that everybody looked to. And so he went to Jesus at night because he can't go during the day. Everyone's going everyone's to wonder, why to him? What are you thinking? And so he went by night to sort of evaluate Jesus and what Jesus had to say. And he spent the next three years thinking about it. And Nicodemus would go on to be a disciple. And so Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, these secret disciples, they take courage and they go and publicly acknowledge we're one of his disciples and we want to take his body and we want to give him a proper burial that he deserves. And whether Joseph initially took courage and Nicodemus came alongside and said, well, if he's going to, I'm going to. Or perhaps they had private conversations amongst them. Not that they would let out for everyone to know, but privately they had these conversations and they both knew that the other was a disciple. What we see either way is this. One is sharpening the other to take a stand 
and take courage and to do what needs to be done. One is encouraging the other. And I would just say to you, I hope you have people in your life that encourage you to run the race with Jesus. It says in the book of Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And there is nothing like the value and the importance of fellowship to help you run the race in your relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not designed to be lone rangers. We're not designed to do our own thing and we politely say hi to people. We're designed to share life together and to sharpen one another. So my friends, if you don't have those people in your life, if you don't have that person in your life, seek that person out. Commit it to prayer. Join a small group where you might have a good chance of finding a person who wants to run the race along with you. Begin connecting with people whose faith you admire. Could I hang out with you, please? You seem like a good Christian. I'd like to hang with you, or whatever. It sounds weird, but if they're a good believer, they'll let you hang with them, or whatever. Begin asking the Lord. Pray that the Lord will bring that person in your life. Never underestimate the value of fellowship to help strengthen you uh, to walk strongly with Jesus. And so these two men together, they go to Pilate, they ask for the body of Jesus. As we read there in verse 58, Pilate orders it to be given to them. And so with permission, Joseph takes Jesus' body. Verse 59 seems to indicate, indicate very lovingly. They take his body down on the cross very, with great care. They apply a clean linen shroud to it. And then they, as it says, they wrap it in that shroud and they lay it in Joseph's new tomb. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. It seems because the Sabbath is fast approaching, it would begin that night, that Friday night. And so if Jesus died at 6, we are either on Sabbath already, which begins Friday night, runs through Saturday, or it's very quickly approaching. And so these guys, they want to take care of the situation quickly. They're going to find a tomb that's nearby. We know that the garden tomb that many think might be the tomb that Jesus was laid in was right there along, not too far away at all from where the crucifixion likely occurred. And so they laid Jesus' body there. Now that was meant to be a temporary solution, not because of the resurrection. It was meant to be a temporary solution. They were going to go back a little later, prepare the body more properly, but they were going to skip the Sabbath day, Saturday. And they were going to do all this on Sunday. And perhaps at that time they would move Jesus to a different location or whatever it may be. But it was meant to be a temporary solution. Little did they know that it was indeed a temporary solution. And so Jesus' body, hurriedly prepared for burial, they put it in Joseph's family burial pot, uh, plot, which is essentially a man-made cave. And as we read the remainder of verse 60, they roll a great stone across the entrance of the tomb, and presumably they leave there and they go home because the Sabbath is coming. And so they'll have to make more permanent arrangements later. Matthew then adds, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite uh, the tomb. Now these two women are going to play a prominent role uh, in the next chapter. Take notice a couple things. One, verse, uh, chapter 27-56 says they were at the cross watching Jesus as he was crucified. And now they accompany his body with J Joseph, with Nicodemus. They accompany it to the garden tomb. Now there are some that will say, because we know that the first witnesses of the resurrection uh, were one of these women here. There are some that will say, well, they went to the wrong tomb. 
And so they went to a particular tomb that they thought they had laid the body of Jesus in. They look in. He's not there. Oh, he must have rose again from the dead. And they went and told everybody, and everyone believed that. But in reality, they were just mistaken women. These women knew where they were going. They had just been there the day earlier. Also, you should know, sometimes you go to a cemetery, and there's you know, hundreds and hundreds of tombstones, and you're not quite sure, was it by this road or by that tree or whatever? This wasn't a cemetery. This was a garden. And there was one tomb there in the garden. There was one cave there in the garden. They knew exactly where they were going. They had just been there. They weren't confused by it. And so they will go to this particular place uh, the next day. We'll read about it when we get to chapter 28. And so you'll have to come back and find out what happens in chapter 28. Okay, my friends, we'll, uh, we'll do that in three weeks um, as I'm away the next two weeks in Nepal. Let's pray. That's going to kill us, the suspense, isn't it? My goodness, what's going to happen? You can read ahead if you really must know. Father, we thank you for the wonder of the cross. Why would the Creator God, who doesn't need us in any way, why would He humble Himself and become obedient even to the point of death on a cross? Lord, uh, it's impossible for us to fully get our hearts and our minds around it. Lord, we know that you love us, and yet, uh, in some ways, those are just words, Lord. It's impossible for us to fully understand the extent of your love for us. But Lord, you demonstrated your love for us that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And so, we're beginning to understand. And Lord, we rejoice in that truth. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, but that you made a way. The veil has been torn. That we, those sinners, can enter into the presence of a holy God because of the sacrifice of your Son. And so, Lord, as we consider that, we rejoice. And Lord, we do look forward to the resurrection. And so, Father, uh, bless us as we meditate on these things. Lord, as we take some time this week and consider Psalm 22, as we look at Hebrews 10 and other places, Lord, we ask for your word to come alive. Lord, that everything about this moment in time, that your son, uh, that before the foundation of the earth was known, that everything about this moment in time, Lord, would just resonate within our hearts and the joy of our salvation. Uh, would rise to the forefront of our thinking. So Lord, be honored, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.